Hello everyone and welcome to Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labour and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Cynthia Chung, partner at Deakins in Hong Kong. Here on Employment Matters, we bring you updates from around the world as we dial in our local ELA lawyers. These good folks practice on the ground in jurisdictions around the globe, working daily to help their clients move through these difficult times. Today, we're going to be chatting with Xiao Xiaoyan, associate at Junhe in China. On the program today, Xiaoyan is going to update us on sexual harassment law in China. Thanks for joining us, Xiaoyan. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Cynthia. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. It's so good to have you on our podcast. I know that sexual harassment has been a sort of a hot topic in China lately. I've been seeing China has updated its law regarding this area. So maybe you can tell us a bit about the recent changes of sexual harassment law in the workplace. Yeah, sure. Thank you for your question. Yes, exactly. So I think affected by the global Me Too movement in recent years, people's awareness of anti-sexual harassment has been greatly increasing in China. And the relevant laws have also attached more importance to address this issue. For example, in the beginning of 2019, China's People's Supreme Court created a new cause of action called Sexual Harassment Damage Dispute, under which the victim may directly file the lawsuit against the harasser. And also from January the 1st this year, China's civil code became effective, as many of you know, which also stipulates the notion of sexual harassment on the national legislation level for the first time. And also it includes males into the scope of sexual harassment victims for the first time. And also in this year, we see many national and local official guidance coming out about how employers should prevent and stop sexual harassment in the workplace, which also provide us with a clearer direction towards anti-sexual harassment in the workplace. Well, it's, it's really good to see that China is also sort of following suit of some of the sort of international standards. And, you know, Me Too movement and all that is also quite popular in China as well. Very interesting indeed. So you mentioned that sexual harassment claims could be filed now. Are they typically filed against the harasser or in the workplace? Would people also file it against the employer? And do you see a trend of these filings sort of increasing? And what type of damages can a victim obtain from these claims? Yes, I think according to my observation, in most cases, the claims are filed directly against the harasser because there is a clear legal basis provided by civil code of requesting the harasser to bear certain liabilities for damages. While in contrast, although there have been several cases in which the victim also sued the employers for their failing to prevent or stop the sexual harassment, the number of such cases is very small compared to the cases against the harasser. Personally, I think a possible reason may be that it is not fully clear as to whether the clause in the civil code could also serve as a legal basis for suing the employer. And even if it could be, it is also not clear as to the legal consequences that the employer may face if they do not fulfill their obligations. Actually, there was one famous case just happened last year in Sichuan province in China in which the victim sued both the harasser and also the employer, while the judge finally rejected the claim against the employer because the judge thought that the employer was not qualified as a co-defendant in the sexual harassment claim. 
So, and also speaking of the damages that a victim could obtain, I think the damages usually include like apologies and also compensation for the losses. Well, in Hong Kong, actually, most of our cases will be filed against the employer because they are the people with the money. <laughs> so it's quite yeah. interesting to see the contrast. Okay, so I've also read in some cases that the alleged harassed, usually a man, will sue the victim for defamation after the victim's accession becomes public. Is it very common? And does it mean that many victims are hesitant to then report harassment cases because they're afraid of being sued themselves? Yes, I think in some cases, the alleged harasser will sue the victim for defamation if the claim becomes public. But generally, it usually happens when the alleged harasser is a celebrity, but it's generally not very common, you know, in most cases. As to my knowledge, a typical case was between two persons. One is called Deng Fei and the other is called Zhou Sicong, happened in China. So in that case, Deng Fei was a famous reporter and public interest celebrity, and he was claimed as a alleged harasser. And Zhou Sicong was a guy who helped his friend who suffered from sexual harassment by Deng Fei to post this experience on the internet. So in that case, Deng Fei sued both Zhou Sicong and his friend for the infringement of reputation, and he finally won the case. Because the judge ruled that those home published relevant articles without sufficient valid evidence proving the sexual harassment. Although in that case, there are some controversy as to the you know, distribution of evidential burden, it could be inferred that the counterclaim brought by the alleged harasser could really happen. So I think generally, this kind of counterclaim may be one of the reasons that make the victims reluctant about speaking out their experience. But I personally believe that it should not be the major reason. Instead, the fundamental reasons for the victims of being afraid to report the sexual harassment cases may include their lack of evidence, which make them very hard to win, and also the potential so-called victim blaming pressure from the public. And also one point I want to mention is that besides the alleged harasser's claim of defamation against the victim, another very common type of claim filed by the harasser may be the unlawful termination of employment against the alleged harasser's employer. That is also another typical type of case. So that actually leads me to my next question to you. So how difficult it is to prove sexual harassment under Chinese law? You know, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you need to have sufficient evidence. And also, you know, I guess it's kind of a universal thing that in cases of sexual harassment, usually you wouldn't have eyewitnesses and it's his words against hers. So under Chinese law, is it difficult to prove sexual harassment? And what is the sort of typical type of evidence accepted by the court? Yeah, honestly speaking, I would say it is generally difficult for the victim to prove the sexual harassment. And as I just mentioned, one of the biggest obstacles is lack of sufficient evidence. As we know, usually sexual harassment would take place in uh, secluded places and also out of expectation, which makes it extremely hard for the victim to collect evidence in a timely manner. Based on our prior case study, usually in China, physical evidence has a relatively high chance to be accepted by court, such as the video surveillance, tape recording, photos, texts, emails, etc., while the victim's statement alone, as well as the witness testimonies, carry low probative force. However, in practice, and also in the cases I've personally handled, 
the most common and even the only evidence we could obtain is the witness testimony. So I think such he says, she says dilemma makes it very hard for the victim to successfully prove the sexual harassment in court. Well, this is probably no different from many other places. So since most of our audience would be employers, so I was wondering whether you can tell us more about the employer's obligations regarding sexual harassment and what suggestions would you give to them in China in fulfilling such obligations? So firstly, under Chinese law, the employers are legally obligated to prevent and stop the sexual harassment in the workplace. But the law does not elaborate on the specific actions that employers should take to fulfill such obligations. So in practice, usually we will suggest our clients, the employers, taking some practical measures to combat sexual harassment. For example, building the office with transparent design, such as clear glasses, making rules and policies addressing the prohibition of sexual harassment in the workplace conducting anti-sexual harassment training for all employees, establishing a well-designed whistleblower channel for the employees to report sexual harassment, and also responding to and investigating into the sexual harassment complaints in a timely manner, and then et cetera, et cetera. So all these actions are proved to be very good measures and also recognized by court as the employer's efforts to fulfill their obligations. Wow, there seems to be quite a lot of obligations. So what if they fail to fulfill these obligations? What are the possible penalties or liabilities of the employers? And practically speaking, have there been any cases of penalties being imposed on employers? So I think, as I just mentioned, so far, Chinese laws do not shed light on the specific liabilities or legal consequences if the employers do not fulfill their obligations. But I think based on the basic principle for tort liability, the employer's failure in fulfilling their obligations may lead them to bear certain liabilities for damages, such as the compensation for the losses caused to the victim. Nevertheless, in practice, despite of several cases that try to sue the employers, as we just discussed, we barely see a case in judicial practice where any penalties are imposed on the employers. Well, that should be a relief for many of our employers then. (laughs) Okay, maybe we could wrap up now. Where do you see the law in China going on the issue of sexual harassment? Yeah, well, personally, I believe more detailed rules will come out to help the victims and the employers to fight against sexual harassment. Actually, we already see several efforts this year like several official guidance on anti-sexual harassment have already been published by national and local authorities. Such official obligations give us more specific examples of what constitutes a sexual harassment, as well as some practical suggestions on how to prevent and stop sexual harassment in the workplace. So I think in the long run, with the sexual harassment cases increasing, a judicial interpretation of civil code may further shed light on the currently unclear issues, such as the employer's liabilities. I also look forward to the Supreme Court's opinions on the trial of such cases, which may hopefully revisit the rules on evidence so that to ease the victim's difficulties in proving sexual harassment. It is certainly very encouraging to see all these laws coming out to protect employees. But certainly for employers, even though at the moment, practically, they're not on the hook yet, they should sort of obviously be keeping themselves abreast of the law and so that they don't get themselves into trouble. 
And obviously, there will be many issues evolving. So, Xiaoyan, thank you very, very much for taking the time to discuss these issues with us today. And obviously, for our audience who have more questions, please connect with Xiaoyan directly. Click on her bio in the description of this podcast, and you'll be able to find Xiaoyan. For our audience, please also search the ELA website at ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Cynthia Chung. Thanks so much for listening.